Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Because even though a lot of areas in, in Brisbane have boomed, many of the sort of blue chip areas have, haven't doubled. Maybe they've experienced 50, 60%, even 70% growth, but doubling, very few of them. Um, but in these areas, it's possible, these low socioeconomic areas. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. Tyrone Chum, and in this episode of Invest Like a Pro, we're chatting with founder and director of Housefinder, Simon Liu. He explains why it doesn't always pay to listen to the naysayers, how to strike the perfect balance when it comes to choosing suburbs, and how buying at a lower price point in a lower socioeconomic area can lead you to 100% growth in just two years. While areas in Brisbane such as Logan, Woodridge and Crestmeet may not be beachside, they're certainly worth taking a ride on as long as you know how to surf these particular waters. Lou recognizes buying in a low social economic area is difficult for some investors to consider but the benefits and rewards at the end of the ride can be pretty darn swell. As property buyers, we're always conditioned to buy the best we can afford. You know, the best areas, the best house, the best street. And in many ways, the best in terms of how um, we or our family and friends perceive that property. I think I think uh, for a lot of us, you know, I don't want to say it's, some, it's like an insecurity that we all have, but, you know, it's a, it's a massive purchase for anyone. And I think it's natural to want to be proud of that purchase in terms of, being able to tell your family and friends that oh, I bought this amazing house in this amazing suburb. But in my experience and in, with a experience of a lot of my clients and colleagues and, 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 uh, and, and people who are, you know, professional investors, I guess you can say that doesn't necessarily translate to the highest performance of uh, property investing. So what I mean is, Using my example, when I when I started buying properties, in uh, you know from day one, you know I was gravitating towards okay. I went to a mortgage broker, find out, found out exactly how much my, I could borrow, and I was looking prop, at properties at the absolute max of that that's um, that's uh, 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 that that affordability, and I was also focusing on compromising on the property itself to maybe getting to a quote unquote better suburb. So 
at the time, you know, the best suburb I could afford was uh, 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 an area called Ride in Sydney. Um, and the, you know, instead of buying a, a house maybe further out west, which I should have, uh, I ended up with a little two bedroom unit, you know, instead. Yeah, this was in West Ride, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this one was in West Ride, correct. That's right. I remember this story. <laughs> I still own it, by the way. I've had the opportunity to sell it, but I thought it's my baby. It's my first baby. You got to keep that, yes. Interesting. I talk about being unemotional, but here I am being emotional about it. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you get to a certain point, you can you know, afford to be a little bit emotional about, about something. So it's all good. It's a balance. It's a balance. Yeah, it's a balance. Um, but um, yeah, you know, when I bought this property in West Ride, you know, it was negatively geared, uh, negative cash flow. Um, at the time, I paid way too much for it. And in hindsight, even now, when I'm looking at all the all the, the massive boom that Sydney has experienced, and if I had just put that money into an area that was possibly possibly a little bit lower socioeconomic at the time, not only would have it had paved a way for me to grow a larger portfolio, but I would have made a lot more money on that particular property as well. Can you just explain to the listeners what social economic, a lower social economic would be sort of referenced to so people can kind of understand? In any major capital city or in any area really, there are good and bad areas or perceived good and bad areas. And then there's a lot of stuff in between as well. So, you know, a lower socioeconomic area is an area where it might be a, a large mix of renters. It might have you know, uh, at least printed in media or at least, you know, the perception of that area is considered, uh, uh, you know, high crime rates, lower socioeconomic, maybe the demographics of the population living there is not uh, as desirable, if that makes sense. Um, and it, it's, it's an area that, uh, uh, you know, normal sane people would naturally uh, gravitate out of. You know, they don't necessarily want to get into it, uh, especially from an investment uh, property standpoint. But I'm going to use, you know, Logan as an example, because Logan literally two or three years ago was was one of those areas. If you jumped online, did your research on forums and things like that, it was it was bashed to death. You know, it was one of those areas that people were like, don't ever buy there. It'll never do anything. It will never go up. Uh, you know the the um, the, um, the the demographics there are way too too bad and just just really just the negative sentiment on that particular area. And I, I'll admit, I looked at that area too on the recommendation um, to have a look and look at Logan, Logan Lee, Woodridge, Marston, all those areas. I, I even went up to have a look. And yeah, when I first drove up there, from my personal experience, I thought, wow, there's like trash cars on the street. <laughs> there were, you know, vandalism everywhere. And I thought, wow, what have I look, come up to have a look at? And it kind of just put me off because I saw all that. And obviously, in hindsight, when we talk about it, it's obviously done, you know, it's changed quite a bit. We can talk about it now, obviously, in hindsight, because the properties that I bought just two or three years back for myself and even for, for my clients as, as a buyer's agent, uh, have more or less doubled already, you know, 100% growth. And the the growth has come about not because everywhere else in Brisbane is also booming, because even though a lot of areas in, in Brisbane have boomed, many of the sort of blue chip areas have, haven't doubled. 
maybe they've experienced 50, 60%, even 70% growth, but doubling, very few of them. Um, but in these areas, it's possible, these low socioeconomic areas. And what I, this is what I mean when, we, we, when I talk about riding the socioeconomic boom. Whenever there's a massive boom cycle that we're currently seeing in Brisbane or even what's happened in Sydney, properties become too expensive, especially in desirable areas. And that forces people to move further out. It's called urban sprawl. I'm sure a lot of listeners would have heard of it. Um, and when they move out, they inadvertently gentrify lower socioeconomic areas. And these become the next quote unquote middle class or more acceptable owner occupier friendly areas. And that's exactly why, you know, a lot of my portfolio and the client, my client's portfolio that are bought in places like Logan that were low socioeconomic have experienced so much growth and so much uh, equity now that, you know, we're all onto our next stage of property investment. And the beauty with these areas is, uh, is when you, when you buy them at a point before that, that sort of uh, uh, a gentrification or that socioeconomic change happens, you buy them at, at the floor rate. You buy them at like the cheapest they can be. And the yields, the cash flow is typically quite high, you know, especially in comparison to other parts of, of Brisbane. So what that means is for an average investor who's on an average salary with average savings, it allows you to buy more. It allows you to buy a larger quantity of these properties, which in turn exposes you to a lot more growth when that socioeconomic boom or socioeconomic shift happens. Does that make sense? So, so that's, you know, I wanted to make this point because a lot of people have that fear of jumping into these areas. Uh, I, I talk to, you know, clients every day, especially you investors. You know, oh, Simon, I really only want to buy within 10 to 15 Ks of the city. You know, uh, I'm really not looking into these areas because of X, Y, Z, it's too uncertain. They're bad areas. They're not going to do anything. I think that is sometimes correct with some areas, but you need to be selective. Even with these sort of lower socioeconomic areas, you can't be buying in areas that are, um, uh, 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 you know, maybe are too low socioeconomic or maybe in areas that have uh, intrinsically something physically there that 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 will hinder uh, growth irrespective of uh, what, el- what anything else is doing at that particular point in time. Uh, so being selective on these suburbs is important. I want to add as well to this is the thing, you don't necessarily have to go into the particular suburb that has had a low social economic and buy the worst in that area. You can actually, there are going to be also homes or houses in there or investment properties that are in the good quality part of that social economical area. Um, I remember this is the interesting thing when I was driving around, yes, you kind of know which side was the really, really bad side of Logan and then when you hop onto sort of the other side of Logan, you go, wow, that side looks really good actually. It's, it's I mean, it, it's reasonable and it's affordable too. That's the side that you want to sort of sit on and what will happen as you've just talked about with gentrification is that eventually all that whole area gets cleared out and a good example and, and this is mostly for Sydney siders and I'm sure interstates would probably know, Redfern was a classic example of a very, I guess you can say run down suburb in Sydney. It's not far from the city but it was very, very much um, considered as being the kind of area and, and there was a lot of drugs going on in that area, there was a lot of housing emission, yeah, all that, all, 
they're still there, but it's it's completely converted over to now a high demanding area with a lot of character, a lot of cafes. You know, it's got that sort of influx of uh, of it's fashionable now to live in Redfern. You know, so it's kind of like the next Surrey Hills. Spot on, and, and that's that's what I'm. I'm not saying that you know Logan's going to be like that, but maybe one day it could be, and people will look back in 10, 20 years and say, "Oh, you know, I'm living in Logan. Wow, it's a good suburb you're living in." Whereas <laughs> ten years ago, we we're going, "Wow, I don't know if I want to ever live in Logan." It's like that kind of perception changes. Yeah, I mean, people forget that Logan is literally just a council area. You know, you've got Daisy Hill, you've got like you know a, a lot of extremely sought after owner occupy suburbs properties that are well over a million bucks in logan and then on the same hand you've got areas like kingston woodridge and logan central which are still considered probably one of the lowest socioeconomic areas in in in, in brisbane and maybe southeast queensland so it's about a balance you know with that said, I know a lot of people that have bought uh, uh, properties in Woodridge, Logan Central and Kingston and they still made money. But I would say the risk of buying and holding onto those properties are a little bit higher. Coming up after the break, Lou delves deeper into how that social economic boom works. When you get into those that kind of um, feel, uh, I think... Um, I think it kind of sets you up for for experiencing that growth a lot sooner. You know what I mean? Like sooner rather than later. How we learn about building materials the hard way, but it was far from the end of the world. Um, but it's still rented. It's still rented. It's still producing cash flow um, to very good tenants actually, might I add. He shares when you can and can't afford to invest your emotions as well as your money. If you break down all the, you know, every all the white noise, I guess you can say, we're all investing to make money. Right? We're investing in property, shares, businesses, whatever it is to hopefully make some money. And that's next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Have you been looking for months and getting frustrated that each property you've seen seems to be a lemon? Or are you after distress, off-market, high cash flow properties in high growth areas, capital city locations? If you answered yes to either of these questions, you are not alone. For being a loyal listener of the podcast, Simon Liu is offering a free one-hour strategy session normally valued at $500 to help put together an actionable property plan. To get your free strategy session, simply visit housefinder.com.au and fill out the contact form or call Simon directly on 0415-626-342 and quote Property Investory. Lou advises his clients who are new to investing to steer clear of the lowest social economic areas and to aim for the middle of the range so that they don't take on too much of a financial or a mental load. So if you start off with a bunch of properties that are super low socio, the boom hasn't happened yet, um, you know, and you're exposed to bad tenancy issues, a lot of maintenance issues, uh, it's going to mentally stop you from pursuing more properties and ultimately reaching your goals. So for me, what I'd like to do is I still like to, when we analyze like the right areas in these sort of low socioeconomic parts to buy, we still make sure they have that owner-occupier appeal, family-friendly, good amenities, drive around the streets, you know, they're nice looking houses, not trash and, 
you know, burnt out cars and stuff like you mentioned before, while on the streets and things like that. Um, so those those are the areas that are next in line to gentrify. When people get priced out, you know, when your mum and dad gets priced out of uh, of an inner, inner city Brisbane and they're forced, to, well, not forced, but they 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 decide to buy into more affordable settings, they do that same drive around and they go, oh, you know what, Kingston, Woodridge, Logan Central is very run down. But Logan Lee, Eden's Landing, Bethania, Crestmead, Mars and Browns Plains, like these areas are, you know, quite nice. You know, driving around, they're just a standard house, standard suburbia, you know. So when you get into those that kind of um, feel, uh, I think um, I think it kind of sets you up for for experiencing that growth a lot sooner. You know what I mean? Like sooner rather than later. So. So yeah, that's that's called riding the socioeconomic boom, and the socioeconomic boom typically happens in line with a property boom cycle. Like I said, it's tied very closely to affordability. Uh, when a city booms, the inner city parts go first, or at least in this example, using Brisbane, the inner city parts went first, and then it's getting filtered out into these sort of outer areas. Uh, and uh, you know, if you bought several of these properties. A few years ago, even today, you know, I, I think there's still so much opportunity uh, in Brisbane, uh, which we're, we're definitely still picking up. Um, I think you kind of just expose yourself to more growth. Yeah. What I'd like to ask, since we are talk, talking about you and your portfolio and what you've experienced as well, are you able to share with us maybe two of your properties that you might know at the top of your head that you purchased in those areas that have shown some really good you know, examples to say? Because I, I remember when I was looking, this was maybe about 10 years ago, we could have picked up properties for about 180, 220. I remember you, you posted in the property chat, you're picking them up like peanuts. And I'm like, That's like just going to a candy store. I don't know how much they're worth now, but my gosh, those were good times. I'm a very stubborn investor. <laughs> I, um, you know, I bought these properties and look, they were, they, were, they were really crappy houses when I bought them, <laughs> you know, but I bought them cheap. And I bought them in suburbs like Crestmead. I bought them in suburbs like Logan Lee. And when I was buying them, I was buying them for around about the on about the two hundred thirty thousand dollar mark. You know, this was maybe five, six years ago, and uh, they achieved very little growth, honestly. You know, during that immediate time frame. Um, and when I bought them, they needed a bit of work. We'll talk about a property we bought. Uh, I bought over at Logan Lee. You know, it was an old Besser block house. Um, uh, uh, it was on a big block of land, 985 square meters or something like that. Uh, fairly close to Logan Lee Station, all that kind of stuff. But the, being Besser Block, uh, this was like my third or fourth property. So I was still quite new to investing. And I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I thought Besser Block was great because I knew I was buying a low socio area and I knew that tenants couldn't punch holes in the wall, you know, because it's li- literal concrete. But what I didn't know was <laughs> Besser Block is extremely prone to cracking. Okay, so it's very slight movements in the ground, which all houses settle over time. Anyway, there's massive cracks throughout the entire property now, which has been like filled in. Obviously, it's tenanted, so I have to fill them in with uh, with, with like a, a, a special kind of sealant. Um, it's it's a pretty shoddy house, put it that way. Um, but it's still rented. It's still rented. It's still producing cash flow um, to very good tenants, actually, might I add. Um, and uh, you know, $230,000 we paid for this house. And now literally, um, I would say maybe about three or four weeks ago, 
you know, we had a knock on the door, an agent called me up and said, Hey, you know, I want, I had someone wanting to buy for 600,000, you know, because of the land potential and anyone who knows Logan Lee, uh, knows that $600,000 for a, a, a property with decent land in Logan Lee is not far fetched in this market. That's a classic example of, you know, an investor or myself biting the bullet and going against the grain. You know, I remember buying this house and I actually drove up uh, at the time to look at the house and uh, I think it was like my dad because my dad's quite handy. So I think he wanted to come up and maybe help me fix a few things and you know, he came up as well. And the, the, the general sort of consensus was what the hell was I doing? I can imagine your dad like that because, you know, I've, I've met your dad and had a chat to him and yeah, he's the kind of person who's very handy. Actually, same as my father because we're both very similar trade <laughs> and my father would have said exactly the same thing he would have told me and I would have listened to my father. That's the thing about it. Looking back now, I look, you know, all respect to him, uh, but they're not property investors. You know, they're coming from a point of care. Uh, they're coming from a point of what they know. Um, uh, which in the property industry or the property investment industry is quite limited. So even though, you know, there was that kind of uh, personal hurdles to get over to, to buy houses like these, you know, I, I knew what I was doing. Like just, you know, I knew this was part of the strategy. I knew these areas were gentrified. You know, all those fundamentals made sense. It was next, right near the M1. Literally, I, you know, I've driven to Brisbane and back several times. And, uh, uh, you know, it was like 20 minutes. 20 minutes drive to the city, 20 minutes back, you know, to the Gold Coast, it's easy. A lot of shops, schools and parks and transport, everything's there. Even though I bought a crappy Professor Block house, there were a lot of like really nice established houses in, in Logan Lee as well. So I knew that there was potential for that sort of socioeconomic boom. Um, and but more importantly, when I got it at 230, it was probably worth about 300 at the time. You know, I always bang on about buying good deals. Um, and, uh, for me, just purely numbers wise, you know, putting my blinders on about how I, that I didn't want, would never ever live in there or that kind of stuff. Um, there was money to be made and that 60 grand difference, uh, of equity that I managed to pull out helped me buy a few more properties in Crespi, you know, so that enabled me to buy more houses, uh, in these low socio areas, which now obviously looking back has exposed me to a lot more growth. You know, it's kind of like owning 10 or 20 or 30 Logan Lee houses that have gone from 230 to 600 uh, and still going, you know, at this point in time. So that's the power. That's the power of being able to sort of, you know, be unemotional and, and just kind of, you know, thinking about the strategy rather than how you feel uh, about, uh, about, about buying your next property. And that, that's allowed you to be able to also grow into other amazing deals, which we've talked on previous episodes, like the ones that you purchased at Port Macquarie as well. You know, if you didn't have this kind of ability to be able to have built up that equity over that period of time due to, you know, what's happened over this period of time. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, buying it and holding it for that period of time to be able to access that equity. You wouldn't have been able to purchase those additional properties that now you've turned into Airbnb and, and generate great cash flow as well too for you. I mean, it happens in stages. I always look at property investing in stages. Just because we're buying these low socioeconomic houses, that doesn't mean, that's not the end of your journey. You know, that's just the start of your journey. Once you've got your five or 10 established houses that's generating equity, generating passive income, 
this solid low maintenance i mean even this house in logan lee that's i would say more or less falling apart the rental demand is huge it's providing me with a good passive income yes i need to spend a bit of money on it every now and then in terms of maintenance but probably no more than any other investment property you know and because i guess of the expectation of the quality of the house and maybe the area the, the maintenance that I can do on it or get away with, I guess you could say, can be quite, quite, quite affordable. You know, if I need to replace a tap, I just get the cheap one from Bunnings. You know, if I need to uh, redo a, a bench top or whatever, a kitchen bench top, I don't have to replace marble. I can just go again to Bunnings and get some like a, a one of the more sort of affordable uh options and just why would you need to it's a tenants at property you just put the basics that they need and they're happy and you know that's the most important thing once you establish that portfolio of you know 10 properties and you got that going then yes you can target uh your inner city fancy renos like you see on the block <laughs> you know you can do it you can do it properly you know uh, or you can target instead of doing like little subdivision sites you can do maybe four or five uh 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 uh, four or five uh, uh, subdivision blocks, which obviously yield a lot higher, uh, a lot, lot higher returns. Uh, or maybe you can um, uh, get into uh, uh, blue chip renovations. Maybe you can get into commercial, pro like large scale commercial properties that actually give you decent yield. Uh, so, you know, property for me has happened in stages. You know, I've got my initial stage where I've, I've, I've got that set and forget keep bringing my initial passive income if all else fails tomorrow uh you know i can live off and then now i have the i guess the financial luxury to uh to target more risky and maybe higher return projects as well i think what was also good that you touched on briefly and we're going into a little bit more depth about this is the mindset behind it because at different stages of your journey um you'd have to change your mindset to fit i guess to ensure that you, you, you can overcome some of the challenges. As you said, you know, some people who you don't recommend when they're starting out at the beginning of the journey not to go and buy into those lower, lower social economic areas because mindset-wise, they're not ready for it. But because if you've, you've done so many of those now, you're comfortable with that, you know what the risks are, your mindset's in that headspace, it makes it a lot easier for you to transition. So I wouldn't mind just delving into that aspect about the mindset side of things of how you've been able to I guess gradually overcome yeah i was the same as any other investor starting out you know very emotional uh, all based on how i feel based on the expectations of the people around me to buy these properties a turning point for me was the realization that had i done things more unemotionally i would have made more money and that's what we all like if you break down all the you know, every, all the white noise, I guess you can say, we're all investing to make money, right? We're investing in property, shares, businesses, whatever it is to hopefully make some money. And the realization that by being emotional about buying houses has, has was an opportunity cost for me to not make as much money or make less money with buying these sort of initial houses was kind of like a, a light bulb moment in my head, meaning that, okay, Every property I buy from now on, can't be emotional about it. It's got to be about numbers. It's got to be about, you know, unemotional factors that would actually generate profit, you know, and that will enable me to build on that, build a portfolio on that.
So, you know, it's it's a hard, it's definitely a hard thing to do. I remember buying each and every one of these houses as soon as you sign on the dotted line, uh, the doubt creeps in. You know, did I do the right thing? Um, you know, what if what if these areas never experience growth? Uh, what if the houses are, are not uh, up to standard? What if the tenants are bad? Whatever, you know, all the things that people tend to worry about. Another thing that actually helps is the price point of these houses. You know, naturally in lower socio areas, the buy-in is a lot cheaper than obviously more expensive areas. And mentally, it's easier to get your head around the fact that, you know, back then I was spending two, three hundred thousand dollars on these properties, but even now spending five hundred, six hundred thousand dollar property dollars on a property uh, is not as daunting as buying a, a one to one and a half million dollar property. You know, the prospect of getting into that much debt, the prospect of having pay, having to pay the amount of interest on a larger loan, uh, the prospect of seeing what properties are renting in that area and realizing the cash flow is so bad, um, you know, kind of gave me a, a peace of mind. You know, and coming from that last point as well, cash flow, I think that is another point that enabled me to overcome that hurdle. Because because when I was buying these houses for two fifty odd to two three hundred thousand dollars, they were yielding at least six, seven percent rental yield at the time. You know, so cash flow was great. And even now, when we're buying houses for clients for five, six, seven hundred thousand uh, dollars, and they're bringing in five, six, seven hundred bucks a week in rent, uh you know, on the interest rates that we're now on now, when we do the cash flow analysis, uh, they're all cash flow positive. So for me, especially when I was working nine to five, when I was still working nine to five back then, having that sort of uh, peace of mind that, okay, if it goes up, great. If it does nothing, fine. But even if it goes backwards, I've still got this cash flow coming in. That's not going to put me on the streets. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not going to be put me put, jeopardize me in a position where I am struggling financially, or I have to sell the house, or you know whatever that case may be. So I think that uh, coming back to the numbers, the numbers definitely helps me make that decision or make that take that plunge at the end of the day. It's absolutely so so important when you mention that as well too, because when you actually have, say for example, a property that pays itself off without you having to put more money in. Um, that gives you assurance that no matter what it does, you can sleep at night because I know what it's like to be in debt and also family-wise to be in debt with so much when we purchased something that had such a huge mortgage on it but it was also negative cash flow. And, and I think back in our generation, our parents' generation I should say, they were hounded in saying, you know, buy a negative um, for negative gearing purposes or negative cash flow for negative gearing purposes so they can, op- yeah, so they can offset you know, the, the high income. But looking back at it, it was probably a very, very bad loop or spiral to go into because ultimately you just get into more and more debt that you won't be able to pay off until, you know, hoping that the property goes up in price. We see this time and time again with people doing house and land packages and off the plan units that is very physically appealing. I mean, who doesn't want brand new? But when you literally just, it's not even, you don't even have to go that deep. Just look at the surface of it and realize, oh, wow, I'm actually paying so much higher than what this property is worth for that for that feel-good factor. You know, even if those houses go up in value, you're just playing catch-up. 
because you won't be paid way too much to begin with. So anyway, it's a, it's a, I think it's a pretty important lesson for a lot of people to, to uh, or a lot of investors to, especially when they're starting out, to, to learn. Thank you to buyer's agent Simon Liu, our guest on this special episode of Invest Like a Pro presented by Housefinder. Also, for being a loyal listener of the podcast, I've asked Simon to offer a free one-hour strategy session normally valued at $500 to help you put together an actionable property plan. To get your free strategy session, simply visit housefinder.com.au and fill out the contact form or call Simon directly on 0415 626 342 and quote, property investory.